0: The Brass. Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraph Studio, my guest on this edition of Fangraph Studio. contributor to Cleveland Sports weblog, Waiting for Next Year. He also served as Fangraph's resident, writer-in-residence for the month of September. It is Mike Hattery. Mike Hattery is the guest on this edition the program. He both provides context for and elaborates upon some of those themes which emerged during his residency. First and foremost, the dichotomy, what one might characterize as the dichotomy between players and big data and the degree to which players probably ought to be protected from big data, that which is wielded by organizations. We also discussed the doughy middle infields of the mid-aughts in Cleveland, middle infields which included, for example, Raphael Belliard and Johnny Peralta, pre-LASIK Johnny Peralta. Moreover, we consider some common practices in the field of jurisprudence, like due diligence and also doc review, which is short I'm led to believe for document review. Captivating, captivating stuff, one is forced to say. Uh, Before we get to the conversation with Mike Hattery, allow me first to note that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable fee. Readers of Fangraphs.com can support the great work that appears at that site and for a slightly less reasonable fee, readers can acquire an ad-free membership which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, both facilitating faster loading speeds and also liberating one the distortive effects of advertising. Fangraphs ad-free membership at Fangraphs.com, and then by clicking around a little bit is how one acquires it. Okay, uh, with this advertisement now having concluded, let us move on to our conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? September resident, September writer in residence at Fangraphs, Mike Hattery. And when does begin? Right now. Audio sounds fine. Um, I'd like to start off by saying a couple things to you, by way of introduction. Mike, first of all, hello. Hello. Yeah. All right. That's good. Just like (laughs) two humans. And um, secondly, what I want to say is, um, um, oh yeah, uh, don't be concerned because it'll. Well, it won't even be. It won't be your fault. It might be my fault, but it would mostly be the fault of circumstance. If this conversation starts out a little bit like dog, <laughs> okay, because that's what happens when two people who have never spoken before um, first start speaking. It's it's naturally uh, it's 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 going to be like that. That's fine.
1: Sure. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, d- don't you agree?
1: Of course, of course. Okay.
0: All right. Well, good. I'm glad we've established that, um, and uh, so now we can have a conversation. Just two people. The pretense for our conversation is as follows. Uh, You were uh, the Fangraph's resident for the month of September.
1: Yes, it was a blast. A lot of fun.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Now, listen, one thing that I plan on doing in this conversation, and you're more than welcome to return this favor, is to make some strong, is to (laughs) jump, uh, leap uh, to some conclusions about you based on a, a bare minimum of evidence.
1: I do that all the time. That's my life's work. Okay. I think. Yeah. Well, let's start. Uh, let's start with
0: a very simple thing, uh, which is where are you right now?
1: I am currently uh, in Cleveland, on the east side, uh, in the in the living room of my new home.
0: Okay. Oh, are you a homeowner?
1: I am a month. Oh, this is very really exciting. Homeowner. Is
0: this is this your first time? It is indeed. It is indeed. Okay. And uh, was it? An overwhelming process for you. Now, I know that you're. I believe that you are a student of, or perhaps have recently been a student of,
1: uh, jurisprudence. Is that right? That is correct. I'm a law student at Case Western uh, okay. Law School.
0: So I would assume <clears throat> that for someone, and I don't know if the, I don't know if this has any uh, grounding effect, but I know that um, that sometimes the um, that jurisprudence is. Ornate and sometimes labyrinthine in its proportions, and that's how also I regard the the purchase of a of a home. So I was wondering if your legal background aided you at all in the purchase of your home and contending with some of the labyrinthine uh, paperwork, etc.
1: Potentially, Ohio is very very strange. This is this is probably lost in a in a little bit of a meander. But I'm used to sort of I grew up in upstate New York, and I'm used to a much more Uh, I guess you could say complex and lawyer-based process, Mm -hmm. whereas in Ohio, uh, there are generally no lawyers uh, in a housing transaction. Um, So a lot of it's handled by, you know, your title agency and your realtor, uh, which actually makes it sort of uncomplex, but you're signing really complex documents. Um, So I guess I put my wife a little bit at ease, but I don't think she really trusts my instincts after uh, my doc review. Every year, what review? My review of the documents. I think I made her a little bit nervous.
0: Oh, oh, a doc review. See, this is some of that, some of the, that spicy hot legalese <laughs> uh, with which I'm I'm prepared to become acquainted. Um, is a doc review just when you examine the, the relevant documents in a transaction?
1: Essentially, yes. Okay, that's that's right. how I'm using the term of art at the moment. Yeah,
0: I've also so the, one thing that I've learned about um, lawyering is that a lot of times. There are um, somewhat obscure or ornate terms uh, for otherwise relatively mundane tasks. Um, Like if I'm not mistaken, like due diligence is just like an umbrella term for making sure you've you've read all of the uh, read all of the documents as well.
1: Yeah, essentially we, we like to create create ornate terms to create value in our profession. Uh, I suppose others do it as well, but I don't think anyone really matches the ability of lawyers to create ornate terms to express simple things.
0: Yeah, right. And it's true, and it does add a lot of value. You can you can charge quite a bit. I remember speaking uh oh, I've spoken with different parties, but I think that one of them in particular is Craig Edwards, who is a writer for Fangraphs.com. Um in whose post I'm currently ignoring by speaking with you but it's okay (laughs) um he uh yeah he was telling me about some of the amazing things he's able to do um as a as someone with i don't know if he was part of i don't know do you have to do you have to have do you have to have passed do you have to be a member of the bar in a particular state to perform due diligence on a case uh
1: you know i'm not certain i think i believe so but it well, actually, you don't have to be a member of the bar because sometimes due diligence is going to be done by legal interns and, and things as such. Um, okay. Yeah. All right.
0: So you don't necessarily have to do that. So I think that was something he was doing because I think he had gone to law school but hadn't uh, passed the bar in – at least in Illinois. Maybe he had done it somewhere else. Anyway. Uh, uh, okay. All, all very good. Uh, now, so you you live on the east side of Cleveland. Now, <clears throat> you're familiar, I assume, uh, to, to some degree with uh, Fangraph's contributor, uh, prolific Fangraph's contributor, Travis Sacek.
1: Of course, of course.
0: Yeah. So Travis uh, grew up on the east side, but now he lives on the west side. Uh, and I was wondering, this would be a good time to ask someone besides Travis, if there is any – oh, if uh, there are any distinctions made among the people of Cleveland between a typical east sider and west sider. And I suppose what, south sider – a north sider would be someone who just lives in a lake, right? <laughs> I believe so. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. So irrelevant there, but um, can you tell me uh, – or is there? Uh, are there what assumptions made about people given their um, given where they're living in terms of the city? Uh,
1: I think there are some. Uh, I think certainly the west side is sort of the newer side of the city. Um, there are a couple west side neighborhoods that are sort of the hottest, sort of hip neighborhoods in the city in Lakewood uh, and Tremont. So I think um, the west side has a little more youth, a little more vigor to it. Uh, the east side is a little older, a little more traditional. Um, and and certainly, you know, Shaker Heights is a, is an old East Side neighborhood that um, is probably one of the three oldest in Cleveland, and so it's certainly the the older side of this. Is that
0: where you are, Shaker Heights?
1: I'm University Heights, which is right next to it, but it's uh, it's a little bit more close to a post World War II um, development rather than a early 20th century development.
0: Oh, okay. Now here's the now, if I'm not mistaken. I, well I believe I've seen Shaker Heights cited in various texts as being um, char- as characterized as a as a streetcar suburb um, does, <laughs> does it, um, is, is that right is that uh, right that would be of course a, a closer in suburb that is accessed by a streetcar or trolley or something like that is it is that true?
1: Uh, Outside of the streetcar, I mean, there certainly are trains, uh, but it it certainly is true. It really butts up right against um, sort of the sort of southeast uh, edge of Cleveland, right against uh, the Buckeye neighborhood, which is a part of Cleveland and has a Cleveland area.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. And I'm seeing that now. Um, I'm seeing that now if you, is it Buckeye Shaker, right? That's kind of like this uh, liminal space between the two.
1: Okay. Yes, yes.
0: And uh, what goes on? Wait, so so what goes on out there?
1: So that's actually a pretty interesting juxtaposition in that, you know, as you have in, in a lot of cities that were sort of redlined uh, in history, you know, you have Buckeye, uh, which is sort of a disparately poor region, um, sort of sitting right next to Shaker, which is perhaps one of the three wealthiest suburbs, uh, in the city. Um, and you so, sort of have this, uh, you know, collection of, uh, college housing and, uh, grad school housing right in between the two of them.
0: Okay. And for, for what, uh, for what campus then?
1: Uh, Case Western.
0: Oh, oh, okay. All right. So that's where, and that's where you attend school. Correct yeah, so. Okay, alright It all comes together Oh yeah, that's, that's <laughs> right up there Right by University Circle Well, this is very exciting To learn about a new place Especially without having to go there No packing <laughs> involved It's all miserable um, Yeah, Travis lives out in Bay Village What do you know about Bay Village?
1: Uh, you know, it's, it seems like a sort of newish Very, uh, you know, very young Very yuppie, delightfully at times pretentious neighborhood Oh yeah, that
0: guy That's exactly how I describe Travis <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, ma- you mentioned you're from uh, you're from New York, so uh, we're going to do two questions back to back. Is uh, from where in New York precisely? You, you, again, you don't have to list like your uh, uh, your home address, uh, but a general sense of where you're from.
1: Uh, I'm from Ithaca, New York. Oh, um, sure, it's gorgeous. It is indeed. It mm-hmm. is indeed. I'm the uh, the lone person in my family who's not a Cornell graduate, uh, but everybody else is tied to. Tied to Cornell at one point, so we lived in Ithaca for my entire childhood.
0: Yeah, was uh, one or one or both of your parents involved with the university there? Or?
1: Yes, my father was a, a researcher at, at Cornell.
0: What do you, what does a researcher do?
1: He mostly does sort of consulting with um, rural economics and local government.
0: Okay. Oh, that's very exciting. So you think?
1: I, he certainly he certainly believes so, and and I at times also find it interesting. Um, exciting is not something frequently thrown around. <laughs> All right, yeah. Well, I don't know.
0: Uh, it's I suppose it's exciting for me when I meet. Um, no, this is not to, di- to discredit the the worth of my own parents. However, <laughs> um, I do for me I find it uh, I find it personally exciting when I meet adults who have. Jobs that seem as though there's sort of, um, I suppose, intellectually demanding to some degree, um, and uh, it seems like ha- like you would have to navigate a bunch of sort of um, um, sort of di- different sorts of problems if your job was to was dealing with like, um, you know, rural e- economic development, et cetera.
1: It certainly is demanding, and I, I do think it, as, as I jest, I do think it's sort of very interesting, and I've always enjoyed discussing it with him, but it's it's something that's sort of peculiar in... Uh, <laughs> it's a very small field, it's very narrow, and, and it's one that most people sort of just glance by.
0: Here's a, uh, here's a uh, question for you. Uh, which, um, Which player... Uh, I will say I will, here. Let me rephrase it. There is a player in AAA right now, um, who is a product not of Cornell, but a product of Ithaca College, Ithaca University, mm. Ithaca College, Ithaca. You know what I'm talking about? Do, Ithaca College. Yes. Who has um, I would say somewhat surprising, surprisingly to some. Has ascended uh, somewhat rapidly through the minor leagues and has and had success in AAA this year. Do you know who it is?
1: I do not. This is quite embarrassing.
0: No, it's okay. Goodness, uh, I'll give you. I'll, I'll give you three questions to ask.
1: Um,
0: I suppose if you don't if you've never heard of the person, it's totally unhelpful. Uh, position least, position player. Yes. Infielder. Uh, he, he does split time. But, yeah, he has traditionally been a middle infielder.
1: Mm. Oh, my goodness. National League organization, did you say? I don't know if I did say that.
0: But I'm prepared to <laughs> confirm it. He <laughs> oh, did. Can you? I, I will tell you who it is. It is Tim LaCastro. Tim LaCastro is in the uh, – he was traded a couple years ago now from the Blue Jays to – the Dodgers in exchange for international bonus pool money, and uh, has had actually had quite a good season uh, for what I believe is now the Oklahoma City Dodgers. Does that sound right
1: for AAA? Sounds right. Yeah, Sounds I think right. it's right.
0: Um, <clears throat> uh, perhaps I'll ask you about Ithaca once again, but uh, part two, essentially, of the question I was going to ask was: How does one become a Cleveland fan? And 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 uh, I, I, I assume you're a Cleveland fan now. You write for. Um, Or at least have written for. You can correct me. You can. um, You can. You can state what is the true fact. Um, uh, Waiting for waiting for next year, which is a which is a a a pan Cleveland sports blog or a pan sports Cleveland blog.
1: Yes, yes, I am. uh, I am a WFNY waiting for next year blogger, uh, and in all my free time. but yes, in, in regard to your first question, I think, I, I think you were moving towards, you know, how does one grow up in upstate New York, um, and become so oddly obsessed with the Cleveland Indians? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really good, it's a very good question, especially, you know, I grew up sort of after the 90s teams. They certainly were not very good during my youth. Um, Bill Selby, uh, was a personal favorite. Uh, Carlos Santana was the first star I attached myself to in the last eight years. Not really star, but at least star of The Nerds and mm-hmm. August Fagerstrom. Um, but certainly, um it's just my dad. Uh, I think, you know, much like a lot of people who adopt fandom, we adopt our parents' fandom and what they're most passionate about. So he grew up in in middle Ohio, and I grabbed the fandom from him. That is... If you were to... to
0: perform a breakdown, right, by percentage of how people um, arrive at their team allegiances? Um, how, how do you think it would it would break out? Um, and what you've got, you've arrived at one of them here, which is to, essentially to inherit the fandom of a parent.
1: Yeah, I've always thought there were sort of like three factors, which is, you know, you have your region-driven fandom, mm-hmm. you have your sort of the fandom that's trashed which is the bandwagon fandom and then you have the parental fandom and i've always thought parental fandom was probably most most the driving force i don't know if i can put a proportion on it but i think that more than more than region certainly uh and definitely more than bandwagon fandom because i think that's actually a pretty narrow space uh drives it
0: well i think yeah bandwagon fandom that probably would apply maybe to a fan that's less engaged too don't you think Certainly. Yeah, maybe someone who, who you know, um, and, I, and I, I actually really don't begrudge anyone for this, but shows up to watch baseball during the playoffs, for example, um, or is attached not so much to a team as a particular star player for one reason or another. Um, although I wonder how often that happens in – I would guess it happens less in baseball than it does in basketball, for example, where there I feel like there are there are folks who are just fans of LeBron James, um, and you know wherever he ends up, you know they would be a fan of his. and then probably I mean of course there's the opposite there are people who uh, despise LeBron James regardless of where he is. Um, <clears throat> so you, so you adopted it for your from your, your father. Um, yeah, I would say and then I w- well I would add one more type or or at least ask you where this sort would fit in um, to the taxonomy you've created here. Uh, and, and it's one that I know exists. I know that this is why a lot of folks are Cardinals fans, is that KMOX, the radio station in St. Louis, f- uh, for years, and I, it might still be the case, I, I think it has a an enormous uh, bandwidth. Maybe I don't think that's the term. Do mm, you think bandwidth yeah. is the term for a radio station?
1: That certainly I, I'm operating with an understanding of where you're going. Yeah, right. Wattage.
0: Maybe it's a high wattage. <laughs> <laughs> Something, whatever the uh, the sort of power metric is for radio students. I, know, I believe that KMOX possesses it. And um, uh, Dane Perry grew up in, uh, in uh, go- the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. And it was actually, when he was growing up, Cardinals games were the only ones on the radio. Or maybe it was when his father was growing up, Cardinals games were on the radio and he adopted it from them. But it does appear as though and it so at some level it's regional, I guess, um but this would be a sort of regional association for those folks who don't live you know with like within direct vicinity of of the relevant team. some sort of exposure I guess is necessary,
1: yeah, I think that actually you know I certainly I think that's a phenomenal point i I grew up you know if you if you live in western or central new york um in the southern tier. Uh, you know, at night you can pick up uh, on occasion WTAM uh, 1100, which is sort of the home of the Indians broadcast. And it certainly was a part of my fandom growing up because, you know, I think my fandom started before MLB.tv existed. Um, And so the only way for me to really engage with a game was to listen. And so um, if you had a clear night and you you did for five days out of the week, um, you could hear Tom Hamilton on WTAM. Um, and that certainly fostered it. So I, I definitely think that has a, a pretty instrumental role.
0: Now, when I uh, have a couple times conducted a uh, a crowdsourcing project um, to, to grade and, uh, I guess, ultimately rank uh, broadcasters both on television and radio, uh, in, I guess, what, both times I've done it, uh, Tom Hamilton, Cleveland radio broadcaster, has been well acquitted, Um it does seem as though folks have a, um, that he uh, they, they have a nice uh, strong relationship with him. Listeners have a strong relationship with him, and, I'm, and it, is that sort of the case for you? Is there um, um, is there a nostalgia present there?
1: Certainly, and I think Hamilton does the sort of key moments in a baseball game very well. Um, he conveys a certain excitement that is really engaging, Um, and when the Indians are good, it's a lot of fun. Um, So I think that part of him in the last couple of years has been a lot of fun, again, to engage with. I think Hamilton, much like all of us, enjoyed some frustration uh, with an intermittent break in, in 2007, but I think in terms of, you know, he freezes memories into your mind because he bottles up the excitement in the most pivotal moments of the most important seasons.
0: If you were, I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen anything like it, but it, it seems though one could produce something like a scouting report for announcers, right? Like a, to sort of uh, break down a, a broadcaster's tools, essentially. And you seem to have identified at least one of them already, which is the ability to respond to to moments, right? The ability, the ability to call them, and and it's not. I suppose even within this particular, you know, tool, there are a couple of different ways to think about it. Like it could be um, articulating them with a sort of unusual precision, uh, and it could also be conveying the excitement of the moment, capturing the excitement of the moment in a in a particularly accurate way. Um, what if you were to if you were to th- to imagine some other tools that a broadcaster might have. Im- might possess what do you think they would be
1: i think certainly we have two others that come immediately to mind the first would be sort of storytelling and that's where you have your 80 grade on vin scully Mm -hmm. uh and then you have you have a third which i think is sort of it's not um necessarily sabermetrics, metrics but there's a preparation level and a knowledge level um to sort of Help the fan see the granular. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, that's a third tool. Maybe you and could you could
0: call it broadly analysis, but it doesn't necessarily have to be quantitative analysis.
1: Certainly, I think one of the things that I that I always notice, and I'm always really interested in, in is a broadcaster's ability to explain to me what a pitcher is trying to do, and you know, sort of how how their sequencing is, or what pitches they lean on. But that I think is sort of Broadly in an analysis, but you know something that I think is really valuable in a broadcast.
0: I would agree with you, and I would also say uh, uh, you mentioned Vin Scully. I would say the same thing is the case for Bob Eucher, uh, and both of those announcers were were highly rated um, when I've run, when I've uh, you know, sort of facilitated these crowdsourcing projects. And I would say that um, <clears throat> neither of them is necessarily. Uh, obviously like their, their strength is not necessarily like sabermetric type of analysis or even uh, particular you know even the sort of more scouting sort of based analysis and yet they're still beloved <clears throat> and I, th- I think that one way an announcer can excel um, at this at the th- sort of analysis level right. uh, analytical level is also by simply by not saying anything that's actively dumb <laughs> I think that's I think that goes I think that goes a long way I think that uh, especially on television uh, although I think it can happen on radio too I think and, uh, I from what I gather from how they behave is that maybe broadcasters feel some sort of pressure to add um, you know to add commentary to to the game's events and And in so doing, is maybe inclined to make um, to, to make statements that that are not supportable um, and simply by not doing that, I think an announcer can save him or herself a lot of grief
1: certainly i and I think there's also I don't know if silence is a fourth tool or if it's one that's sort of buried inside um, Managing the moment, mm-hmm. but I think silence is just an incredibly powerful tool. Even if there's nothing particularly important going on, um, but just in terms of protecting the game flow, uh, I think silence is is so incredibly powerful, and it protects, you know, as you said, the announcer from sort of rush, rushing to foolishness for the purpose of. Of filling airtime, saying
0: anything. Yeah, I know that uh, I w- I um, had on this same program actually, Fangraphs Audio. I had, um, um oh boy, <laughs> the uh, the radio <laughs> voice of the Texas Rangers, who is he's won all of the awards, and his name is Eric Nadel, of course. Eric Nadel, appearance uh, um thoughtful guy, very cool guy actually. Learned. Uh, I think maybe during the '90s, when the, the Rangers, or at, you know, after the Rangers had done quite a lot of um, scouting and had signed a lot of players from Latin America, he he took the trouble to learn Spanish so that he could better conduct interviews with them, um, and just you know to to allow them to feel comfortable. Uh, he has said he said that um, he feels he's a radio announcer. He feels that it's easier for radio announcers not to look like a, uh, because they because as long as they have the ability simply to narrate what's occurring on the field that will occupy most of their time whereas if you add a video element to that and much of that same action is just available to the viewer <coughs> there's that again there's that impulse to uh, you know to esen- essentially attempt to fill up dead air. And the, the the risk is much greater than the reward when attempting to do that.
1: Yeah, that makes, that makes so much sense. And also in the sense that I think um, when, you know, I think one of the values of not, when you're not listening to a game, the announcer has the ability to sort of shape your understanding not only of what's happening in the moment, but sort of what's happened during the game, how the pitcher looks, how hitters are reacting, how the strike zone looks. But when you're also... Sort of observing the game while listening to an announcer, who's also observing the game. Um, their their insight can just seem very limited uh, if they aren't well prepared.
0: Right. Yeah, but uh, I'm glad that I personally I'm an announcer because uh, preparation for me is dull. <laughs> it's dull. Um, I don't know how you feel about it. Are you bored by preparation? I mean, you are a lawyer. I guess it's it would just be doc review, right? Do I have that right? Doc review? That's that term.
1: Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Certainly, certainly, it can be dull. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, okay. can. Um, uh,
0: one thing I, one thing uh, I like to do, and about which I'm always curious, is to learn. Like, uh, is to is to to learn about the first team, uh, with which, uh, in, in particular, our residents, um, that like came into consciousness. You know, the fr- the first team. Uh, You know that really resonated for you, or with whom you developed a real relationship. I'm guessing at the Cleveland team, but is there a particular year?
1: I think the 2005 or the 2007 Indians would be probably probably 2005. Um, I had a great love of Ronnie Belliard. Okay, Um, every every facet of Ronnie Belliard was fascinating. Him playing 15 feet onto the grass to cover up his range issues. His tongue uh, was always interesting and wagging, much like Jordan. Okay. Uh, and he just, everything about him was really compelling. And I was 14 years old, 13 years old. And uh, that team uh, was so much fun. You had Crisp, uh, Coco Crisp, who also is an incredibly fun player. With his fingers wagging on the bat, um, and a lot of other just interesting sort of Hafner before the burst and Broussard. It was just it was a really fun team. It wasn't a well known team, and it was pretty. Yeah, corporate.
0: and actually seemed to have it seemed to have a, a players with a a bunch of different skill sets too, and obviously uh, now I think Sizemore was on that team, right? Uh, was on the two thousand at the end of the year version. I believe. Um,
1: what'd you say? What year? I think he he slow yeah at the end of the year I think he was he was productive I'm trying to remember so
0: okay so let's let's get the year right because so two so, 2000,
1: no, no, so full 2004
0: no 2004 was Belliard's first full year. Do you feel like you were it was his first year or or his second year you really became uh, enamored of him?
1: It was the se- I think it was okay. the second year um, his all star year and yeah that was the year Sizemore burst forth and and the Casey Blake season and. and Yeah, it was there,
0: and there were some strange players. Actually, some were still around. I mean, uh, Johnny Peralta, at least Victor Martinez, both still around. Um, But yeah, so Sizemore was on that team, and um, and then also, but it is interesting because I had sort of forgotten about the existence of Ronnie Billiard, but he was actually pretty good for a while. Um, He had some actually pretty good seasons. Even though you're right, he definitely looked like he should be someone who was a great fielder. But I will say, uh, per the numbers at least, um, like his defensive numbers are also above average. That's surprising to me.
1: Yeah, I've always sort of wondered. Someone much smarter than myself um, could research it, but I always it seemed like he m- made much more aggressive positioning decisions in 2005 than perhaps. Uh, anyone else did during that time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I sort of wonder if he was able to hide athleticism based on his positioning and inflatives' defensive numbers. But it's a hypothesis I've never tested.
0: Yeah, it seems like it would require a lot of work to test it, doesn't it?
1: Seems like it would be impossible. And certainly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> Or <I'm> certainly treacherous.
0: <laughs> I guess it, uh, unless you had access directly to like the front office reports maybe, from that year. I don't know to what – I mean, I would assume that um, if positioning were a factor in Ronnie Belliard's success, that it would – I would have to assume that some of it at least would come from the front office as well, don't you? Or the coaching staff, et cetera,
1: yeah. Certainly, certainly. I would assume that as well.
0: Yeah. Well, Ronnie Belliard. He he and Johnny Peralta have to have formed one of the least athletic-looking Uh, Middle infield combos, (laughs) especially relative to how good they actually were. Apparently,
1: yes, very doughy. It was a very doughy middle infield. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, we're we're also pre-lasik surgery for Johnny Peralta, so uh, certainly, certainly a strange infield. What
0: did that do for Johnny Peralta? The lasik surgery?
1: Uh, He had there. I think he had an offensive downturn at one point in Cleveland and. Uh, Cleveland fans have long, long felt that uh, he he had Lasik and his sort of his offense ba- bounced back and and even improved. I think uh, in the post post Cleveland career. Of that's when Peralta. he
0: arrived in Detroit, et cetera?
1: Detroit, and then that first first year or two in yeah, St. That's Louis. Right.
0: Yeah. Huh. Oh, Johnny Peralta! Look at that old Johnny Potts so what was the uh, what what about this thing I you said you said Belliard was a big part of it you were sort of fascinated by his positioning um, what are some other highlights for you from the club
1: well this is this is also a team where um it was sort of it was the first time we were really coming out of the rebuild uh, the sort of post post tommy post Ramirez post Um and these are all guys that I had lived in upstate New York. We'd go to Buffalo when the affiliate was in Buffalo, AAA. And so you had seen Victor come through. You had seen Peralta come through. Um, you had seen Brandon Phillips come through. Uh, you had seen Gutierrez and, and Sizemore. I mean, these are all guys we got to see um, before they decided to be who they were. And, and that, I think, was just a lot of fun. And there was sort of an optimism that this was this was a core that... Um, could win sustainably for a long time and uh that doesn't always work out
0: yeah what was the what was the for you what what are your memories of brandon phillips as a cleveland prospect
1: um personally he was one of my favorites as a 12 year old i loved to get autographs um and he was like the nicest guy in the world he was hilarious at the time going to games in columbus um He was sort of believed as an uber prospect uh, for many of us. I think for most Indians fans, we thought of him more highly, much more highly, even as Sizemore was reaching the same level than Sizemore. And um, I think Cleveland fans sort of were, I'm not sure, I think we were incredibly disappointed when the org gave up on him. And I think a lot of fans will forever hold that against Eric Wedge.
0: And because he he didn't really materialize at the major league level f- for Cleveland, did he?
1: No, no, he was he was dealt quickly.
0: Wait, you said you saw you saw oh yeah, you saw him in Buffalo, but you also mentioned Columbus.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, I interchanged because now it's Columbus. My apologies.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But do you know that he actually did play for another Columbus? Um, or no, wait, no, no. I'm sorry, I'm conflating <laughs> someone now because I'm also secretly looking up Russell Branian stats. Uh, because I was attempting to remember what uh, what uh, Russell Branion's career arc was, and he actually played in Buffalo. And the latest he played in Buffalo was well, two thousand, and then actually two thousand four again. You must have actually seen. Would that mean you would have seen uh, seen him, or would you have would you have kind of missed it at that point?
1: I'm sure we would have seen seen Brannian. Yeah, seen Brannian, and
0: two thousand yeah. for Four played fans. Okay. That's, <laughs> this is useless. I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, Russell Brannion played for the Columbus Red Sticks. S T I X X. And, mm. and that's Columbus, Georgia, though. So that's a different state. And that, Mike Hattery, concludes that riveting line of inquiry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So so this uh, it looks like this two thousand five team uh, was the one that would most appeal to you. When did you develop this sort of um, i don't know if it'd be the saber metric side or uh, at least the uh, the interest in asking questions and attempting to have them answered if not answering them yourself
1: um, i it probably began in 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 regards to baseball in college, mm-hmm. um, I just started um, sort of, you know, I blogged. I blogged a little bit. Where would you, and, where'd you um, go to college? Uh, Clarkson University. It is, it is in northern New York. Okay. Very northern New York. It's basically sitting on the St. Lawrence River, and it is quite cold, uh, but quite fun. Okay. Um. But, but around that time, and actually, I wrote an article on a site I used to write for, and uh, I got shredded. I mean, I got shredded in the comments, and it was, you know, always welcome. And they shredded me with all these sort of nuanced statistics I had never seen before, uh, and I wanted to know about them. So I went on Fangraphs, and I went on Baseball's Prospectus, and I became fascinated. What uh, year are we talking now, you think? 2011, I think. Uh, 2012. Okay. Do you remember the content of of this article? Oh my goodness. I think back then... I was writing about maybe... I I think... Maybe it was a year or two later. I was writing about Austin Kearns on the Indians. And I I cannot remember what I asserted. And truthfully, I'm I'm repressing it. But...
0: (laughs) What, what, yeah, what point do you think you what, would have tried to be making about Austin I, if, I
1: can't imagine. Um, I really can't. Do you
0: have a sense it was pro-Kearns or anti-Kearns? I think it was
1: weirdly pro-Kearns. Um.
0: Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, I see him here. Uh, <clears throat> so I just uh, navigated briefly to the 2011 season for for Cleveland. Uh, and if you're looking at the position players and you're attempting to find – the uh, the war figure <laughs> wins above replacement for for Austin Kearns. You're going to have to go ahead uh, and go to page two for that. He narrowly outpaced Cord Phelps. Uh, Cord Phelps produced the 46th best or A.K.A. worst uh, wins above replacement mark for your Cleveland Indians that year, and then Austin Kearns was second worst n- n- with negative uh, eight runs. But um. Yeah, I, I guess. Now it is interesting to you. Uh, here's one thing that happened to me for Austin Kearns, and I, I sort of um, was talking about this to, to some degree with Dave Cameron just recently about uh, when I was we were talking about CC Sabathia and how. Um, so obviously, Sabathia the last couple of years has actually pitched well, um, but there were a couple of years before that, uh, and following his, well, following what you think of as like. You know, peak, peak Sabathia—sort of the years of uh, during which he flourished when he was quite poor. But I had not adjusted, essentially, I had not adjusted my mental file on Sabathia over the last couple of years, um, except that I—I I had a vague notion that he was throwing the cutter more. I think. Mm. Um, but I—I I should have updated the file because he was—he—he um, he has been pitching quite well. And, of course, uh, we're recording this in the wake of uh, Game 5 between the New York Yankees and New York Cleveland Indians, during which, well, I think, what, Sabathia struck out 9 over 5 innings?
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I gather not. Although, uh, let me riddle you this uh, before we move on to other matters. Is it, in some ways, is it make it easier to have been defeated by aging CeCe Sabathia than it would be by many other pitchers?
1: No, I don't, I don't think it uh, provided a whole lot of solace. Um, no. <laughs> okay,
0: all right. That's fair uh, Austin Kearns, but here's the, here's where we get to the, this idea of uh, updating one's mental file about a player. Is I'm not sure I ever fully did after Austin Kearns, in his rookie season as a 22-year-old, uh, recorded – I wouldn't have known this at the time. It was 2002 – But he recorded a five-win season. He had a line. He had better than the three hundred average, better than the four hundred OBP, and he had exactly a five hundred slugging percentage as a twenty-two-year-old rookie. And so, I from that point on, I my my (laughs) the scouting board in my head was Austin Kurds is fantastic. (laughs) And then I, you know, I looked up. (laughs) I guess it would have been years later, and he was working as a. You know, he was like a. Twenty-nine-year-old, he was already washed up. He was playing. He was a pinch hitter for the Nationals. And uh, I said, "Oh, something, something has seemed to have happened in the meantime <laughs> with Austin Kearns." <laughs> um, but you were actually writing about a version of Austin Kearns even after that. Yeah, it's even after when I regarded him as. And actually, I think when he came when he came to Cleveland, uh, he was. It looks like he had come there. He came there from the Yankees he actually showed up he played well he did not possess any of the sort of power that he seemed at which he seemed to hint earlier in his career but um, he wasn't bad when he showed up
1: yeah his his first year in Cleveland he uh, plays well we deal him for Zach McAllister and sort of he's I think an interesting bench piece and then he comes back to Cleveland and he's um, sort of an interesting triple A bench piece and I uh, felt the courage to protect his image Mm mm-hmm
0: now, now, now that we've had a chance to sort of flesh this out a little bit more, do you feel? Do you, do you do you have a sense of, of the point you might have been trying to make?
1: Um, I I don't remember. I I, if only to hide my embarrassment. I, I think mm-hmm. I don't remember. No, no.
0: Well, well, we've all been there. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, we've all been there.
1: Um, I will in fact blame that Indians team for me having to write about Austin Kearns, okay. though. Uh, I don't. I don't take full ownership because he was among probably <laughs> at least the ten to twelve most interesting players. At least. All on right. That so team. you feel as though you've. That's certainly not right. my own. You can at least make up for that.
0: Was. Um. Uh. Let's see. Yeah. I'm attempting to claim in clandestine fashion perform some Google searches here. To uh, what was it, did, now that site? Does it still exist, or is it lost to time?
1: I think that part of the site is lost to time. Okay. And And if it isn't, I'll make sure. Conveniently,
0: yeah, yeah. (laughs) (coughs) Actually, here's uh, here's some interesting information. (laughs) Um, If you Google Michael Hattery and Austin Kearns, um, an article from Fangraphs uh, comes up from April 30th, 2010, by uh, by Jack Moore, and there appears to be. I know I I thought maybe there might be a comment from Michael Hattery here. Is there? No, there's not. There's not. I oh, don't
1: know.
0: No, yeah, it doesn't look like it's gonna happen. <laughs> doesn't look like it. All right. It'd be fun. It'd be fun to find it. Uh, but anyways, uh, so that was that was the moment at which. what well, you appeared to what? So you exhibited some humility, and you actually decided to uh, uh, to to uh, learn more about uh, some other ideas.
1: Yeah, um I don't know if I'd call it humility or perhaps forced humility. Uh, I suppose. Uh but yes, I uh whenever I, I've since learned and I read the message boards much less frequently, uh, but at the time, I was willing to wear these things and and thankfully I did. Um I view baseball very differently now. Not always I think most of the time for the better, but not always for the better and it was it's, Sort of opened a new window to enjoying enjoying the sport to me, which has made it really fun uh, it makes law school a lot easier when you can sort of write about different questions and different ideas as a break
0: you uh obviously um, uh, the sort of things you're discussing now uh, seems to have made its way into into your current work you wrote uh you wrote four pieces during your residency and <clears throat> um, I mean, obviously, th- th- at the root of all of them is attempting to ask a question and and answer it, but uh, quite quite a bit of this stuff is, I would say, is sort of on what my regard, the sort of uh, frontiers of baseball research at the moment. Um, it's not simply, uh, the things you're doing are not simply to say, um, and I know this, w- so this was a problem in the some of the early days of Fangraphs, I think, know, is that... Uh, you know, at first we would we would be like um, we would make a point say say Austin Kearns <laughs> was having a poor season, but it was because <laughs> um, he had a really low batting average in balls in play, right? We would say, well, mm-hmm. Austin Kearns is probably going to get better because currently he's got a really good a really low batting average in balls in play, and then that was the end of the article, right? Or uh, maybe uh, y- you know uh, maybe. Uh, another maybe a picture maybe Pedro Martinez had given up a lot of hits and we would say well he's, he's given up a lot of hits <laughs> but it's because he's <laughs> got a high badge. it's going to go down and he's going to and then that would be the end of the article so um, th- that was kind of one stage and then we had to sort of break through that editorial uh, editorial wall which I think we did and that was a while ago um, but uh, you're asking you're asking. Uh, interesting questions. It does appear... I mean, how would you characterize your concerns about the game now? Because I start to... I think that it would be possible to uh, find some sort of um, thematic coherence in in the four pieces you wrote for us, but I'm curious to hear how you would characterize your concerns.
1: I think over the last year, um, I've become much more interested in the matter in which big data affects players' rights. Um, and so I think... My my four pieces at Fangraphs were, you know, the goal of a few of them was certainly to highlight um, some of the ways in which um, big data and, and the way we're sort of looking at baseball right now may adversely affect uh, players' rights.
0: Now, um, a part of that is, I think... Well, on the one end, there's the sort of... You, I think the first piece you wrote was protecting players against big data. And I think in particular... <clears throat> um, I think did you you talk about uh, some of the data produced by wearable technology, for example?
1: Uh, I think I mentioned it in passing. Actually, this is that piece was slightly um, sort of based on something that you write in law school called a a note. Uh, If you're on an academic journal, um, I wrote about a 35 page uh, article on um, the potential uh, players' rights issues in terms of predictive health modeling. Um, oh
0: right, right, right.
1: And so this is something that engages with that, and um, you know, I think I was really fascinated. Uh, I read the Two Percent um, by Jonah Carey probably f- five or six years ago now, and one of the one of the pieces that sort of yeah, uh,
0: sorry, the extra two percent.
1: I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yeah. the extra two percent. Yeah, yeah.
0: There's already ninety eight percent there, don't you see? And you just <laughs> need the extra two percent. <laughs> you don't want to get. You don't want to. Invest only in the two percent, because then there's, you're not accounting for the other ninety eight percent. Mike Hattery,
1: that would be very inefficient. Yeah, just- <laughs> but nevertheless, he uh, there's a section where he focuses on, uh, I believe it's Click, James Click. That uh, sounds who, right. Who is doing uh, sort of fant- uh, cutting edge research uh, using pitch FX to attempt to evaluate um, pitcher health risk, um, and, and so that sort of fascinated me. I mean, perhaps more fascinating was that the Rays, A, secretly hired him, uh, and he sort of disappeared from the public sphere, Um, and I guess that raised the concern in me, Um, he may be creating this really valuable, potentially public good in protecting players' health and their long-term earning potential, um, but it's being sort of controlled by a single entity uh, for advantage, and so that sort sort of drove this article.
0: Right, and and I think actually your last piece dovetails with that nicely, um, and that was the piece that you wrote about Francisco Lindor and arbitration, and this sort of the odd incentives that are that are tied to arbitration because um, traditionally, and I think what I think that we're this next arbitration cycle will be um, the first, in, in which is not the case, but traditionally only traditional metrics have been permitted in the conversations um and but for teams uh, teams have are able essentially to manipulate this in a way that that players can't
1: yeah i think one of the things that will become is is really of interest to me is is going to be you know how agencies respond and i think RJ Anderson wrote a really interesting article about this, but sort of one of the approaches so far with agencies in the big data context has been we just don't have the financial flexibility to invest in, you know, sort of organizing and then analyzing the data uh, in the ways that teams can. So for them, it's about adding clients. And so on the player side, they sort of, you know, can't even necessarily utilize the data that's being provided to them, let alone some of the stuff that's still sort of held in StatCast, uh, by organizations.
0: Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because obviously, well, obviously fan there's, um, among the, the authors for the site, there's, there's a great deal of fascination with the ways that in particular, certain players have benefited from the data. And I think, I mean, in, in, in particular with, uh, the sort of, uh, airball revolution, um, you know how to whatever degree it exists there certainly seem to be certain players who have benefited from finding a type of swing or at least refining their approaches at the plate t- to the point where they can benefit from from you know the ideal contact with the ball right and a lot of that seems to be data driven and actually you know, uh, Travis Sacek wrote a really cool piece about Francisco Lindor and his power outburst because Lindor insists that he has made no particular effort to get the ball in the air, and yet his average launch angle has increased like markedly um, year to year to year over the last three years. Um, but he, apparently for him it's a question of pitch selection as opposed to any sort of conscious changes with the swing. Is that how you understand it, too? I think that's that's what Travis found.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the things I tried to dig in on a little bit, and I don't think I sort of nailed it down uh, with a piece I wrote about an Indian's prospect named Eric Haas.
0: Oh, that's right, exactly, yeah. Who's, yeah. A,
1: who's a catching prospect. But one of the really fascinating things to me has been um, sort of the collection of different avenues that players have gotten to this sort of Elevation, revelation, or launch angle, revolution, whatever, whatever.
0: Elevate and call.
1: celebrate. I, th- I think that as well, but uh, yeah. I think I think it's sort of fascinating how, um, for some, it's been more about you know commanding the bat in terms of timing in the zone, uh, not necessarily swing plane, and and for others, still it's it's pitch selection, and I think that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, and and I think that I mean at least the way that uh, Justin Turner talks about it. Is also again not necessarily a question of swing plane, but the, but um, changing the the point of contact, right? Creating mm-hmm. creating a point of contact that's out in front of the out in front of the plate, as opposed to you know essentially like right over the plate.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, as a way to, as a way to, um, you know get more get more out of a swing. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but um, but uh, of course, all of this is grounded to some degree. It's either grounded in the data the actual player changes, or at least our ability to understand it is grounded in the data beyond simply just, you know, like if if Brady Anderson's, whatever, his 50 home run season were occurring right now, there would be, it would be discussed in much different terms.
1: Mm.
0: Um, And, and, you know, there are kind of a lot of players having Brady Anderson's 50 home run season right now. (laughs) Because um, that was a massive outlier when it occurred. You know, he was a previously underpowered player who, as a 32-year-old, <laughs> hit 50 home runs. Um, and it's possible that that was informed by substance. But if something similar happened now, I think there would be much more of an interest in, at least in understanding it, diagnosing it um, in, in other sorts of terms. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> you you do seem to write um, from a, from the, let's see a point of view interested in um, protecting labor to some degree um, would that be a, f- a way to characterize it
1: yeah that, I think that's a pretty fair pretty fair characterization
0: <laughs> what um, uh, there are a, a number of voices and I think that even the the quiet, hesitant voice in my own head uh, thinks that maybe the players union did not extract all they could from their most recent collective bargaining agreement uh, is that is that your general opinion if so um, what ought to, how ought do you think they, nec- they should approach the next CBA
1: yeah I think I think in terms of the value of big data um, and in terms of protecting their players I think I think they've Fallen short of the most recent collective bargaining agreement, um, I think in terms of making sure agencies have access. Um, I think this is one of those one of those areas, though, where where agencies are, are pointing at the Major League Baseball Players Association, and the Major League Baseball Players Association is pointing at agencies and saying, um, in terms of remedying this you know big data issue, uh, we're going to point at each other. Um, and I and I think um, somehow some sort of, you know, positive progress has to be made between the two. And, and I don't actually uh, exactly know what that looks like. I think there could be a really positive sort of set aside for um, player health modeling um, in terms of a pot of money and hiring, you know, a group of data scientists, analysts. Um, and I think that could be certainly a cool or interesting approach, um, sort of a think tank with access. Um, Or there there are other approaches in terms of uh, a team's duty to turn over what's discovered uh, inside, you know, by the the data analysis that's done. Um, You know, one of the things is it's not a, you know, it's not a traditional health record. So um, if a team discovers, you know, high risk factors on a player, it doesn't necessarily have to disclose it. Um, and their incentives don't always align. So I think, you know, forcing disclosure of potential high, high indicators of risk um, is another important part uh, of the next collective bargaining agreement. Yeah. Well, uh, uh,
0: that seems to make sense. Now, in terms of your path with law, um, does, it, uh, does it overlap with any of these areas of concern, if, if not necessarily in the sport of baseball, at least the general concerns with labor?
1: Um, i've done I've done some employment law work, uh, but you know and I'm certainly interested, but it's not sort of I, I do a lot more work with um, sort of regulatory uh, analysis, regulatory compliance, things of that nature.
0: What's an example of that?
1: Um, basically anybody who's bound by um, for instance, FERC, which is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Um, Mm. Things like that. So, uh, would
0: you ever would you ever um, have to represent um, Warren G and the regulators? (coughs) You know, he begins. uh, Of course, his his most famous song (laughs) is um, "Regulate," featuring Nate Dogg, and of course, he begins screaming. He begins by screaming "Regulators." Is he is he calling out FERC? Do you think I, I th- is
1: it? I certainly think he is. I, I think it's a straight. I think he has a lot of energy policy concerns. I would say.
0: Is he calling for? <laughs> is he calling for more oversight?
1: Uh, no, I think I think he's a he's a firm anti-regulatory man.
0: <laughs> I think he might be. I think he, yeah. I think he believes in. I think Warren G believes in the so, in his own sovereignty. What do you think?
1: I I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, well, listen. Uh, uh, do you feel like there's anything I failed to ask you, or to, um, or or to, or to? Uh, uh, let's see. What is this when I when you say? What is this when you say he's your client? You always say, "Oh no, no, he's your witness." Like in a court case, he's like, "Oh, he's your witness now." He's a cross.
1: You're gonna turn it over for a cross. Yeah. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> if uh, um, yes, yeah, uh, is there any way I have failed to cross-examine you? Do you think? Do you think I should have uh, probe deeper anymore?
1: No, I think I think you've accessed the recesses of uh, of my mind.
0: Yeah, certainly. You think we have fully exha- <laughs> exhausted your interest to the
1: public? I, I think the public is certainly exhausted. I would hope. Yeah,
0: do you feel as though uh, when when you were writing for thinkgraphs.com, do you feel as though the copy editors' alterations to your p- your pieces were fair? <laughs> do
1: you I feel they were generally fair. I do. I think they were phenomenal. I okay. I think editors make writers much better, and you made me look a little bit more competent, so I enjoyed it quite a bit.
0: Would you if Would you have felt comfortable lodging a complaint with that same copy editor?
1: <laughs> I certainly would have okay I'm, good I'm i wanted to it.
0: make you uh, i wanted to make you feel well and comfortable it's a you know it's a living document it's a conversation Everyone just working on it to make sure it's as good as possible
1: <laughs>
0: yeah anyway i enjoyed, you know i don't know if you noticed, we don't have an october an october resident um maybe you're i i hope you're not self conscious you feel like you you know after writing we decided it was a bad idea to continue it. I know. Did you, you end you the
1: program? Did I break Fangrass residency? <laughs> I'm very concerned. I wanted to ask, but off air, at least. <laughs> uh, no, the, the playoffs
0: uh, create a—they uh, create too much of a distraction. There's so much uh, sort of uh, writing that has to be done. It's th- this time of year, and the trade deadline, and then also uh, winter meetings require a lot of um, reaction mm-hmm. commentary. Whereas, you know, just during the regular season, you're like, oh man, I wonder what JD Martinez's launch angle is today. You know, and you look (laughs) it up. (laughs) That's a piece by Travis Sochik, by the way. Have you met Travis Sochik ever?
1: I have not. Since he's so close, I should probably stalk Bay Village, but I think I'll avoid that.
0: Uh, You know, there might be alternatives, like sending an email, for example.
1: No. Are you intimidated
0: by Travis? I'm
1: not sure. All right. Should I be intimidated by Travis?
0: No, I think he's a sweet guy.
1: Okay,
0: he seems very sweet. Um, and we we speak every uh, we speak once a fortnight. He he makes a fortnightly appearance on on the program. <clears throat> he uh, he does have a small child though, which I think sometimes uh, maybe constrains the amount of time that people have available.
1: <laughs> I would I would think you would have a good perspective on that. But.
0: Oh man, these kids are so <laughs> stupid. I mean, they're adorable one second, and then the next they're just like they're wailing, and uh, they're inconsolable.
1: You know, I don't. I don't think that changes very much, to be honest. No, it's
0: true as you get older.
1: All right, is
0: there any is there any new business? Any new business, Mike Hattery? Uh,
1: There is no new business. Okay, there's no new business.
0: Well, I think that all of the documents uh, have been thoroughly reviewed. Doc review complete. Due diligence. Uh, performed right certainly okay yeah and then uh so i think we can complete this uh, allow me to um, be- begin the end by saying thank you mike hattery thank you thank you uh i, I will say that is mike hattery uh not only the september resident for FanGraphs.com, uh, but also a contributor are you a prolific contributor or just a sort of run-of-the-mill contributor to uh to wait for next year
1: Quite prolific. Oh,
0: okay. Quite prolific. Contributed away for next year. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.